with me, if you would, to the book of Titus, chapter 2. And we will consider together verses 7 to 10 this morning. Titus, chapter 2, verses 7 to 10. Uh, the last couple of weeks, if you've been here with us, we've been noting that in a world where words are cheap and actions speak louder than words, God's people are actually talking. We're saying something to the world around us. The church is talking. We have a message that we're proclaiming. We proclaim the words of, God, of this book, the Bible. Uh, we proclaim the message of the gospel, the good news that Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again the third day. So that we could be saved from our sins. And our message basically to the world all around us is that Jesus Christ is everything. The gospel's everything. We say repent and believe this message will drastically, radically change your life. That's our message. We're saying something. But again, we do live in this world where actions speak louder than words and, and, and words are cheap. So we say this with our mouths, but do our actions back it up? And as we've been noting, this becomes a massive problem when the world sees Christians behave contrary to their beliefs. Here's our belief system. Here's what's radically changing our life. Well, you don't really look that different than me. The world often sees Christians behave contrary to their beliefs. And in Titus chapter 2, this passage explains that the gospel, when it it comes into a person, when God saves a person, and this, this good news starts to permeate God's people, and the Holy Spirit starts to work within God's people. They're transformed in their everyday lives, so that their behavior does begin to really match up and line up with their beliefs. And, and that is a process in many ways. It happens little bit by little bit, but it should be noticeable and obvious. And God wants to see this change. God wants your friends and neighbors to see that change in your life. Look with me at Titus chapter 2, verse 1. Paul begins... Uh, in this chapter by saying to Titus, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach people to live in a way that that lines up with the truth of God's word. So Titus is to teach the Cretan people to live in a way that befits the gospel and the Bible's teachings. And if you've been with us over the last couple weeks, we've been looking at six different groups of people that the gospel should change. We began uh, two weeks ago with the gospel should change older men and younger men, and then last week with older uh, women and then younger women. And today, the text turns our attention to the last two groups of people. Uh, and they are workers, uh, ministry workers, and maybe we could say managed workers. Workers must apply God's truth to everyday life. Uh, look with me at Titus chapter 2. I'll read verses 7 down through verse 10. Uh, Paul writes, and he's in verse 7, he's speaking specifically to Titus Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So six people the gospel should change. We're looking at numbers five and six. Today, number five, ministry workers must apply God's truth to everyday life. Are you a ministry worker? You might look at me and go, oh, well, you're definitely a ministry worker, right? You're, you're a pastor. Verses seven to eight were addressed to Titus specifically. Uh, by the way, Titus wasn't an elder. He wasn't a pastor. He wasn't a deacon. He was a ministry assistant to the, to the apostle Paul. 
that role doesn't exist in the church anymore. There's no exact role like the one that Titus was in. However, most of what Paul says to Titus here would apply to almost any kind of ministry worker. So who is a ministry worker? Well, this text would readily apply to pastors, elders, uh, deacons, Sunday school teachers, missionaries. I mean, we could make a, a big list like that. But frankly, I think this text applies to almost every Christian because we are all ministry workers for the Lord. And maybe what would be helpful before we dive into this text is for you to just ask yourself, in what way am I a ministry worker? Uh, Maybe you're a ministry worker in some capacity in our church. If you're a parent, you are a ministry worker in your role as a parent with your children. So many ways that we minister for the Lord relationally. Paul begins... Uh, verse 7 with these words to Titus and by extension to frankly I think all of us he says show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works in other words Titus you need to be an example a model or a pattern of good works for other people to follow and, and learn from one year for Christmas my siblings and I all got latch hook rugs I don't know if you know what those are or if those were just a fad why I got a rug for Christmas, I don't know. Um, they were, these were probably gifts from Grandma to help my mom make it through winter with four little kids. But my rug, it, it was a baseball. And if you know anything about latch hook rugs, basically what you get, you get, you get uh, I don't know what it really is. It's like a canvas with a bunch of little squares, and, and those squares are all actually holes. You basically, um, it's just the backing of this rug. And that canvas comes with hundreds, maybe even thousands of pieces of, of yarn, maybe about this long. And then you have this little latch hook tool. And then you've got this diagram or this picture of what this rug you're going to make is supposed to look like. So one by one, you grab whatever color-coded thread is on the diagram. And one by one, you take the little tool, put it in the, the matting, and pull it nice and tight, snug it up. Okay, I did one little thread until you put them all in. And oh, it's my baseball rug. I never finished mine. <laughs> I got like a couple thousand pieces in. I'm like, I quit. It's just a rug. I really don't care. But that diagram or grid was essential, right? You can't just hand me several hundred or maybe even thousands of pieces of different colored yarn and say, hey, Nate, why don't you make a baseball rug out of this? It's not going to happen. It wouldn't even be circular. That diagram or grid was essential because it was the map or guide for how to make the rug. And as a ministry worker, God wants your life to be that sort of thing, to, to be a grid or a pattern whereby others might learn to arrange their lives. And that's what Paul is saying to Titus. Titus, listen, your life, should, it should be a map. It should be a grid for other people to look at and go, okay, that's how, it, that's how it fits. That's where the pieces go. That's how I should live. So that's what he's going to focus on, is this, this being a model or a pattern for other people. And we see five responsibility, responsibilities in that regard of ministry workers, the first would to be provide an ex- instructive example of good works. So far, uh, Titus chapter two is focused on on Titus's verbal ministry to the Cretan people. We saw that in verse one. Paul told Titus, "All right, Titus, teach the people, teach the people what accords with sound doctrine." But a massive shift takes place between verses 6 and 7, and it's a shift from telling something or proclaiming something with your mouth to showing, from teaching to demonstrating. And in verse 6, Paul tells Titus to urge the younger men 
to be self-controlled. That would be something that he would teach them with his mouth. Though it's not very clear in our English translations, uh, the original language makes clear that verse 7 actually continues that thought in verse 6, so that it would actually be something like this. Okay, Titus, you need to urge the young men to be self-controlled and provide them with an example of that. Or urge the young men to be self-controlled by means of your example. In other words, don't just teach with your words, Titus. Teach with your life. Provide a pattern that exhorts others to follow Jesus. Provide an instructive pattern. Your life itself should instruct other people towards greater godliness and good works. The second responsibility here would be to provide a visible example of good works. Paul tells Titus, he says, show yourself. Interesting language. Show yourself. Demonstrate this in a visible way. Show yourself to be a model of good works. Paul wants the Cretans to be able to see Titus's life. Titus is not to be, uh, maybe we could say, a, a closet ministry worker where he's just sort of doing everything for God in private. He's not doing it in public to be seen uh, for his own praise and glory. But his life, he's living in and amongst God's people. And he's relating to them and they're seeing how he lives his daily life. He's with God's people. They get a window into his life. And maybe I could just say this. If you want to make an impact on other Christians and help them grow as God wants you to, you need to provide a a visible example for them to see with their eyes. You need to spend time with other people. I think some Christians really capture that concept and it's really important to them. I am going to spend time with other people, spiritually, relationally. And other people have a tendency to kind of just retreat and and live much more uh, of a private, reclusive Christian life. This life was meant to be lived together. We say that more is caught than taught, and that is so true. More is caught than taught. And so God wants you to not just teach with your words, but also with your example. Obviously, the kind of example you provide is of great importance. A third responsibility, provide a quality example of good works. It matters what kind of example you have. According to verse 7, Titus is to be a model of what? Of good works. And then Paul gives three specifics of what that looks like uh, for Titus. And these three specifics are really important for you and me. The first is sound teaching. Uh, Verse 7 says, In your teaching show integrity. Uh, That phrase is definitely in contrast to uh, what's said at the end of chapter 1 about the false teachers. You remember what's going on there? They're they're not teaching healthy doctrine. And actually, uh, they're using and abusing people in the process. They may be getting quite wealthy off, off this whole ordeal. And Paul tells Titus to to teach with integrity. The teaching integrity combo, uh, that that language there could be a reference to one of two things. I would imagine it's actually a reference to both. It could be a reference to integrity or orthodoxy of doctrine. Uh, In other words, Titus was to teach right doctrine. He was to teach the word of God accurately. But it was also probably a reference to integrity or purity of motive in contrast to the false teachers whose motives were corrupt. Titus was to teach uh, with pure motives. Love for God, love for others, and zeal for gospel advance. Titus was to be the real deal. And you can't manufacture that. 
Uh, maybe I could make an analogy from the world of school. So imagine uh, your first child is they're, they're just about ready to start kindergarten. You're a little nervous as a mom or a dad. You're really excited. Little kid's about to start his school life. He's excited. You're excited. But there's also a little bit of, uh, of, of nervousness. Is this going to be new and different? And you're really curious what, what your kid's first teacher is going to be like. And you just want it to be a positive experience. Okay, you have option number one. Do you take teacher number one who hates her job and the kids? K-5 teacher. You, sit down over there and be quiet. You over there. It is just getting through her day, miserable hating it, just trying to get her paycheck, get to the point of retirement or whatever, hates the kids. Yeah, every parent wants that for their child. That's going to be a great school experience, right? Option number two. The teacher who, who you don't have to teach to love, love the kids, she just does. She loves her job. She loves teaching kindergarten. She's passionate about it. You can tell that she actually likes the kids, <laughs> wants to be around them, wants to spend time with them. And it's just legitimately passionate about what she's doing. Which teacher would you pick? Well, obviously you're going to pick, pick teacher number two. That's the experience you're going to want for your child. That's the experience that as a parent you feel like, man, that's going to really help my kid love school and learn and just make this such a great experience. I think if we were to take that analogy and and maybe transfer it into the world of ministry in general, it's so true. You have Christians who it's like, are, are you passionate about this? Do you care? I mean, are you, are you really uh, still in awe of the gospel and the fact that God saved you from your sins? And do you, want, do you want other people to know these truths? And do you want to see other people grow? Do you know what kind of pastors and Sunday school teachers and parents and disciple makers make a huge spiritual impact on other people? It's not the ones who are just doing a job or filling a role because it needs done. It's the ones who teach the word of God and serve other people and invest in other people and do all those things for those people because first and foremost, they love God. And they haven't got over what God has done for them. They love God. They, They truly love the people that they're ministering to and care about them. They love the gospel. They're just the real deal. And again, you can't manufacture that, but when it's there, you see it and you know it and you can tell. It's the people who really care and want to be there. And those people make a huge mark. And God wants you to be one of them. People will pick up if you're genuine or not, if you want to be there or not, and if you have pure motives or not. Uh, Next in this quality example comes the idea of a serious life. The last word of verse 7 is dignity. It's, uh, It's somewhat unclear. If that word dignity was supposed to be a characteristic of Titus' teaching or or just his life in general. Can't quite tell what words are qualifying what. But it seems what Paul is getting at with Titus, well, I'd imagine it's both there, but it seems like what Paul is getting at with Titus uh, was that he was to have a seriousness and a gravity in his life pertaining to the things of God. Paul was not saying that Titus needed to look really serious and be really stern all the time. Never smile, never laugh, never goof off, never have fun. Remember, you're a minister of the gospel. You can't do that. No, that's not what he's saying. Rather, Titus was to provide an example of what it meant to be serious and and passionate about the things of God. In other words, an example that says these things are so real to me. 
I, I really am serious about these things and passionate about the things of God. He was to communicate that these things of God were important to him. He was to say with his life that these things are real. And then third in this little list comes speech that is beyond reproach. Verse 8 begins uh, with these words, sound speech that cannot be condemned. James chapter 3 verse 2 says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. A perfect man. Uh, The sins of the tongue are common for all of us. Your speech is so important in ministry. And I don't just mean public ministry. I mean just all of your life, your, your ministry and your investment and your relationships with other people. Words can be the nails in your ministry coffin. Or they can be powerful tools for God's glory. And so for all of us, we have to choose them well. And we need God's grace and we need his spirit controlling us for us to do that. Uh, next Uh, God wants you to provide a consistent example of good works. The phrase show yourself is in the present tense and could be translated something like this, roughly and literally, be showing yourself a model. It's something that you should consistently be doing every hour of every day. When it comes to making an impact, few things trump the power of consistency in ministry. Who are the most effective ministry workers? They're the ones who are consistent in their godly behavior and conduct. Consistency is way better than flashy. Everybody notices flashy and thinks, well, that's what will get the job done. Look at that person and all of their glorious ministry gifts. Look at their persona. Look at their personality. And man, that person just has all the quintessential gifts to make an impact. Well, that's possible. But the people that really tend to make an impact in people's lives are just the people that are consistently godly and invested in other people. And there. God wants you to be Mr. or Mr. Mrs. Consistent. And fifth responsibility of ministry workers, provide a silencing example of good works. This is really one of the purposes or intended results of living as a godly ministry worker. Look at verse 8. Uh, After saying sound speech that cannot be condemned and and saying all these different ways that Titus should be living, he explains why. What's the purpose of all that? So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Uh, When you're the type of ministry worker that verses 7 and 8 describe, you basically take the ammunition out of the hands of those who oppose the gospel. Critics of the gospel or of your ministry don't have any real ammunition against you because, well, look at how you're living. So what happens is they start making things up. Well, I hate this message. I hate the gospel. And so you have to attack this. Well, they go to attack. They don't have anything to attack with. And so they have to make things up. And in that process, they often lose their own voice or credibility with their audience and are thereby silenced. And God just wants us to take that ammunition away by the way you live your life. Uh, I have, uh, for my hunting rifle, I have live ammunition. Obviously, you put, you, you put a round through the gun, you pull the trigger. I mean, it's going to go boom really loud. Uh, the, the bullet's going to shoot down the barrel and just rip through whatever target the gun is aimed at. But I also have, I, I got recently, uh, I think they're called snap caps. They're, they're basically uh, practice ammunition. And so it's just a, a Basically a plastic bullet, uh, you, you rack the round into your gun and you can pull the gun up. You can look down the scope, you can, you can 
Uh, get your crosshairs set on whatever target. Slowly squeeze the trigger. And what happens is the gun doesn't go boom. Normally, if there was live round in there, the whole gun would kick back. Your scope would maybe move this way or that way. It doesn't do that, right? What happens is you see how well you pulled the trigger. Maybe you were like, you pulled it and jerked, and you can see that right through the scope. The whole thing shifts, but the gun never went boom. It's a really helpful uh, little tool to practice with. Two totally different types of ammunition. The one goes snap and the other goes boom. Huge, huge difference. And if you think about the type of ammunition that's in the hands of the opponents of the gospel, the one is lethal to, the, uh, to ministry and the other is completely harmless. What you want to do is take away all the live ammunition from your opponents. The stuff that's real. Like, yeah, look at how that, that Christian's living. Why would I want that message? And for all that them to have is this fake ammo that it doesn't go boom. It, it doesn't send something ripping through the, through the barrel of that gun and, and lashing through whatever targets at the end. Take away the real ammo from people who would attack the gospel. We do that by the way that we live. Because the world is watching, ministry uh, workers must apply God's truth to everyday life. Uh, sixth group of people that the gospel should change. I'm just going to call them managed workers. Managed workers must apply God's truth to everyday life. Look at verses 9 and 10. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Uh, The focus of these verses is a slave's responsibility to his master. Uh, We start reading about things like this and there's a bit of a disconnect because we don't have any slaves sitting here this morning. But in the ancient world, in all these churches scattered across the island of Crete, every one of those churches would, would have been packed full of slaves. Large percentages of them were slaves. Slavery in the New Testament times was much different than you might think of, of say, what slavery was in the United States back 150, 200 years ago. In the ancient world, people often became slaves through military conquest. And they were often highly educated and skilled. What happened was their city, their country just got taken over and all the people got hauled off and redistributed elsewhere. And now they're slaves in another country in another land. And so often they were very educated, um, highly skilled, and sometimes their masters even trusted them with great responsibility. Some slaves, not all of them, actually had relatively decent lives. That was no guarantee. Some of them did, some of them didn't. But at the end of the day, if you were a slave, what you were not was free. You were a slave. I don't think we have any slaves here today. However, much of what's said in these verses would easily apply to anyone who works for someone else or has a boss. When making applications, not everything here is going to transfer 100% since we're not slaves, but a lot of it does. So I want to ask you, are you a good worker or employee? Many of you sit here today and you have an employer. You go to work every day for somebody else and they provide you with a paycheck. Are you a good worker or employer? Or employee. Do you know what? Not all Christians are. And sometimes I've even heard employees say, you know, I'd just rather not hire Christians. Not all Christians are are good employees, and it's highly detrimental to the gospel. As a Christian, you should be a great worker. 
So Paul here gives us six responsibilities of managed workers. And the first is to submit to your master. Verse 9 says, slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. Unless the master was asking the slave to do something sinful, he was supposed to submit. As a paid employee, if you don't like what your employer is asking you to do, or if you don't want to do it, guess what? You can actually just walk off and quit. You're you're not tied to that employer like a slave was to his master. You have that option. However, if you're going to earn wages from that employer, you need to do what he says. You have an authority in your workplace that you are accountable to. And if you take his wages, then you need to submit. Second responsibility, try to please your master. Verse 9 continues that slaves, they are to be well-pleasing. A slave would displease his master by putting in the minimum effort required, doing poor quality work, causing problems, etc. I mean, if, if I was a slave, that is exactly what I would do on purpose. <laughs> right? Like, yeah, I, I'm not motivated here to work for you. I'm your slave. So I'm literally going to put in the bare minimum. And I might even intentionally try to mess things up from time to time. As a worker, God wants you to set out to please the person that you work for. God wants you to put your best foot forward in your labors. And as we'll see, that's not because your employer necessarily deserves it. After all, on the human level, what type of motivation would a slave have to work for his master? It's probably not very high. And the third responsibility, don't talk back to your master. Don't talk back to your employer. The end of verse 9 reads, not argumentative. Titus was to teach Christian slaves not to be defiant, argumentative, and obstinate, or the people they work for. When it comes to your work world, there may be a place for you to bring something up to your superior and appropriately challenge his thinking. Maybe you realize, man, what's going on here is dangerous. Or this is wrong, or this is unethical, and it needs to come up. But anytime that happens, that should be done in, uh, not in a defiant or argumentative way. It should be done with grace, and your general attitude should be that of compliance. And fourth, don't steal from your master. Verse 10 begins uh, with the phrase, not pilfering. That's an interesting word. I I doubt many of us use that word. But it means to keep something back or, or to lay something aside for yourself. Or misappropriate. Basically, it's a form of theft. And, and God forbade slaves from doing that. It's not yours. Don't take it. Don't misappropriate it. Obviously, God would never want you to steal from your employer, whether that be money or tools or time or anything. If it's not yours, don't set it aside for yourself. Stealing shows that you can't be trusted. That you can't be relied upon. You can't be uh, depended upon. And God wants your reputation to be the exact opposite, uh, which is why we see a a contrast come in the next phrase. Number five, demonstrate that you can be fully trusted. Verse 10 says, but showing, and and but there's making a contrast to what was just said, but showing or demonstrating all good faith or trust. Or as another translation renders it, but to show that they can be fully trusted. The meaning of faith there in that phrase has to do with faithfulness, trustworthiness, reliability. And God wants you to show that in everything. That's what a Christian slave was to be. That's certainly what a Christian worker should be. You remember Joseph? He's a slave in Potiphar's house. His story is just awful, right? His brothers literally sell him 
to traveling people coming by. Hey, we'll give you this much money for your brother. Yeah, sure. Go grab him out of the pit. You can take him. The next thing you know, he's in Egypt. He's a slave working for Potiphar in his house. And it's not long before Potiphar put Joseph in charge of his entire house. To the point where when the the temptation uh, occurs with Potiphar's wife and and she's uh, trying to seduce him, he says this, he says of my master, he's kept nothing back from me but you. Joseph is literally in charge of of Potiphar's entire house. The The trustworthiness is extremely, extremely high. And we find of Joseph after he leaves there, And he goes to the next place and the next place. Everywhere Joseph goes, that's the case. As a worker, God wants you to demonstrate that you are trustworthy, you're reliable, you're faithful, and you're dependable. And that should be true in the large things and small things alike. Your employer should be able to count and depend on you. He should know. Basic things like you'll show up on time. You should know, you know what, that that employee of mine will not cut corners, period. He's going to do the job right. In fact, I'm confident of of that guy or that woman that he or she is actually going to solve more problems for me than he creates. He should know that you'll relate positively to other workers. And if, if uh, whoever the work is being done for shows up on the job, you're going to relate to that person well. And you're going to do a good job in communicating with the customer. He should know that you'll manage his resources well. All of those things and so much more. Demonstrate that you can be fully trusted. Why should slaves relate to their masters and work this way? Because actually, if we're honest, this this is not talking about workers like you and me who would go to work and earn a paycheck. This is talking about slaves. And I think if we forget that, we will lose some of the force behind this text. A slave doing these types of things. Why should slaves relate to their masters and work this way? Because their master is such a great guy, treats them like royalty and deserves the uh, the best slave that money can buy? Um, no? Why? And this takes us to a sixth responsibility of managed workers. Adorn the teaching of Jesus. Look at the second half of verse 10. The explanation comes. The logic comes now. So that, here's the purpose of all this. So that in everything they, speaking of slaves may adorn the doctrine of God our our Savior. The slave's goal was to adorn something or highlight something. He was to adorn the beauty of the gospel and the teachings of the Bible in the eyes of his master. The slave was supposed to do that. A slave was to have a pressing concern. I think this is so important. He's supposed to have a pressing concern for the eternal salvation of his master. That's what's going on here. This master of mine needs Jesus. This master of mine needs to know what I know. It looks like I'm the one who's bound here. But it's actually him. I'm the free man. He's the slave. My master is a slave wrapped up in the shackles of his sin. And he will face the eternal wrath 
of God. And it's my job to highlight or adorn the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, so that this master of mine might come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. He was to have a pressing concern for the eternal salvation of his master, someone he was probably tempted to hate and even resent. If a slave was supposed to be that way, don't you think you should be that way as a paid employee? Through your work life, God wants you to adorn the gospel. It's not that God just wants you to take away the ammo. If I could just, you know, live in such a way that takes the ammo away from people who attack the gospel, it goes beyond that. God wants you to adorn the gospel, draw attention to its inherent beauty and attractiveness. Uh, My girls are both really young right now, but I'm sure a day will come when they will be extremely, probably highly concerned about their appearance and adorning themselves. It's going to happen, right? And if I were to sit down and talk with my girls at that point, uh, obviously as a very biased father who will always think that my daughters are extremely beautiful, I will always think that. If I was to sit down and talk with them, I could see myself saying something like this. You don't need to use your clothes and your jewelry and your makeup to try to create beauty and change what's there. Okay, you're not going to you're not going to improve upon God's creation. I could see myself saying something like this to them. Just use those things to appropriately, not sensually, but just appropriately highlight the beauty that God has already created. When God talks about adorning the gospel, that's what he has in mind. It's not like, you know what, you need to make this better. You need to put some makeup on this and, you know, if you could just kind of make it look a little bit better. That's not what he has in mind. No, instead he's encouraging us to draw attention to the inherent beauty of the gospel, what's already there. By the way that you conduct yourself in the workplace and by how you live your entire life, all of that should just highlight the beauty of the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ. Your life is either going to adorn the gospel or it will detract from it. And there's not a whole lot in between. Because the world is watching, managed workers must apply God's truth to everyday life. Be the worker God wants you to be. And by the way, as we'll see next week, and as I I think is hopefully becoming clear with the last couple messages, you can't do this on your own. It's not like, oh, I could just wake up one day and be a good employee. Or or I can just wake up one day and be be the ministry worker that God wants me to be in my family, in my church, my home, wherever else. You can't do these things apart from the grace of God and the gospel changing you. That's the point of the last paragraph of verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all People training us to live these ways. The gospel has to permeate you. God's word has to permeate you. And then these things start to show up. You can't do this on your own. As we conclude this morning, I want to leave you with one big, big thought. One of the things that keeps, I think, coming up in these verses, Titus 2, 1 to 10, is that everyone has a role to play in making God real to somebody else. And maybe that sounds kind of like a wishy-washy way of saying it, but I think it's so true. As a Christian, one of your primary jobs is by the grace of God to live in such a way that God becomes real to other people. And other people see, wow, like that woman, that man, that teenager, there's something going on there. 
And all of a sudden, it's I can't just kind of overlook this God thing and whatever they're talking about the Bible. Like, there's something real here. And I don't know what it is, but it it's real. God wants you to live in such a way. You have a, a role to play in making God real to someone else. We do that by the way we live. And our hope is that the gospel will come alive to people. That, that's a work of God. You have a role to play in it. Obviously, God's the one who opens up people's eyes and they see it. And we pray to that end that God would do that. But we, I, I think we want to kind of just tee that up to whatever degree we can. I'm, I'm living in such a way that how could you escape these realities? Because the world is watching, workers must apply God's truth to everyday life. Would you bow with me as we conclude this morning?